is the <clears throat> sorry, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. Its winds through the entire land, sorry, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thank you. Keep your Bibles open uh, so you can follow along. Uh, and if it is your inclination, take some notes. There's a handout. You would have got one at the door. If not, there should be some there. Uh, and that might help you keep track of things uh, and where we are heading. Now, I'm guessing many of you will be familiar with the concept of utopia. Uh, not the TV show, hilarious as it was, on ABC a few years ago, uh, but the idea of utopia. That is, the idea of a perfect place, a place without fault, a place without problem. Uh, the idea of utopia is an old idea. It's been around for a long time. It was made popular by a piece of fiction written in 1516 by a man named Thomas More. And in it, he described what utopia would be like, what this perfect land would be like. Uh, for him, Utopia was an island somewhere near South America, probably in the Caribbean. 
Uh, it was well controlled and well run and ordered. It had many cities, but they were small cities. The, the population in them was limited. The population on the island was limited and they deported everyone uh, once they got to a certain number. No one on this island uh, had their own house. Now, they all lived in a house, but they didn't own a house. And every 10 years you would move. Uh, everyone on the island would move and you would get a new house. In fact, there was no private property in Utopia. Uh, Any time you ever needed anything, you just went to a warehouse <laughs> and put in a request. In Utopia, agriculture was compulsory and every man and woman had to spend at least two years on a farm learning the trade and contributing uh, to the nation. There was no fashion in Utopia. Everyone wore the same clothes, men and women. Everyone in Utopia works. Uh, and because everyone works, they get to work uh, short hours and have lots of holidays. There were scholars in Utopia, so some people did not real work. Uh, but all citizens were encouraged to spend at least two hours a day uh, of their leisure time in learning and in studying. That might not sound much like Utopia to you. Uh, and so on and so on. This went for, I think he had ten volumes in his series on Utopia. So he was pretty, pretty well thrashed this idea out. It's very unusual, very vague at times, very specific at other times. And it was a joke. It was all a joke. The book is actually satire. Because I don't know if you've ever heard what utopia actually means. <laughs> utopia actually means no place. Uh, it, it's Greek. It means literally no place, as in it's impossible. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It can't exist. It won't exist. Uh, utopia, the perfect ideal place to live, is a myth. That's what Thomas More's point was. And I think it's sometimes how we can look at Genesis 2. We can look at this as impossible because it is utopian, isn't it? Uh, it it's perfect. It's uh, this, this beautiful land with great purpose and harmony. It's true utopia, isn't it? So is it possible? Is it just a, a pipe dream? Maybe something that was but that's been lost forever? Is that all this is? Well, Genesis 2 says no, actually. Genesis 2 says, this is what we were meant for. This is the place we were supposed to live. Genesis 2 says, this is our purpose, this is our place, but also, this is our destination. This is where we're meant to end up. Okay, utopia uh, is not real. Um, Thomas More's utopia, thankfully, is not real. But Eden was. And what it points us to, what it teaches us of is real and it really matters. And we're going to see that this morning as we unpack this chapter. In these verses we're really told creation again. It's, it's kind of creation 2.0, not as in a second attempt but as in a second retelling and it's done so from a different perspective, isn't it? You might have noticed that as we, worked out, as we read that passage. Genesis 1 is creation but very much from the point of view of God, very much with the focus on God, on who he is and on what he's doing, on his glory and his grace and his power. Genesis 2 kind of flips the point of view around, doesn't it? Now we're looking at creation from the point of view of man, from the focus of man. Uh, we, we see man with his place, man in uh, his purpose. 
And you see that in the description. Look with me again at verses 4 through 7. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams of water came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. There's a long aside there in the middle, but basically what it's telling us is this place needs man. (laughs) There is no man. That's why uh, the earth is somewhat unformed. It's why there's no uh, agriculture yet. It's why there's no rain yet. The world needs man, mankind. It needs people to, to work and to order it. And so God fills in what's missing here. God forms a man and he is literally an earthling. <laughs> uh, man is the, the word Adam in, in Hebrew, which is where we get Adam's name from, and he's made from Adama, the ground. Uh, like the animals, man is formed from the earth, but different to the animals, God breathes into his nostrils life. God himself breathes into him I don't know about you, but I've always assumed that that was kind of an impersonal thing. You know, God makes a man over there, he says now, breath, and that's it. But that's actually not the picture we get at all here, is it? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen how Maoris greet each other. Uh, The traditional Maori greeting is, you know, they, they rub their noses. That's quite strange and a bit confronting for us when we shake hands. Uh, but that's what they do. It's called a, a hongi. And the point of it is closeness. And literally the point is a sharing of breath. It's, it's an intimate thing. It's, it's a personal thing. And that's how God creates man here. He literally breathes his breath into us. I mean, there's, there's no distance here. This is intensely personal. Uh, it's, it's really intimate and close. And having done that, God places man. He places him in this special garden. Look at its description in verse 8 through 14. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Do you see what's captured here for us? This is a beautiful land. This is an incredible place to be. God has crafted this garden. Uh, He's filled it with trees which are not only good to look at but they bear fruit to sustain life and good fruit that is delicious and wonderful. Uh, The whole land, it's it's lush and it's fertile. From this land somehow forms a a river which flows to every corner of the globe. Lots of people try to work out what those rivers are to try and work out where the garden is. It's not really the point. It's the fact is, from here goes water to water the whole of the earth. 
This garden is not only a beautiful place but it's the origin of life for the whole world. It's a rich land. (laughs) It's full of gold. Uh, Aromatic resin, which is probably a a jewel or type of mineral, uh, and onyx. This is a beautiful place. It is a place designed for, for mankind to enjoy, to flourish in, to work and to delight in. Look what man is supposed to do in verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it you will surely die. Man is in the garden, he's to work it, uh, to care for it, which is the same word as guard it, and he's to do it within the boundaries that God sets. There is just one restriction. The whole of the world is man's to enjoy and delight in. There is one boundary, one restriction. Because in the garden are two trees. One is a tree of life. One is a tree of knowledge. One is for man. He's free to take part of that and to live. And one is not for man. We're going to look a bit more at that tree uh, next week when we come to Genesis 3. But the the weight of this picture, the sum of this picture, is that this is a good place. (laughs) This place is beautiful. It's stunning. It is an idyllic place to live. And what's amazing is, the imagery that is used to describe Eden here is found in a couple of other places in the Bible. It's found elsewhere. When you get to the end of uh, the book of Exodus we see the plans, the design of the tabernacle where, where uh, Israel would <coughs> excuse me, to meet uh, and to worship God. And what we see there is lots of gold, lots of jewels, symbolic trees. What we see in the tabernacle is essentially a mini Eden. Fast forward a bit further, come to 1 Kings chapter 7. The, the design, uh, the build of the temple in Jerusalem. And what do we see again? Lots of gold covering every single surface. Trees, again, symbolically at the centre. We see jewels in the building, on the, the, uh, uh, the, the clothing of the priests. Again, we see a mini Eden, an Eden-like place. And what that's telling us is that Eden was a very special place and that those te- the, the temple, the tabernacle, were really an echo of what Eden was like. Eden was special because Eden was where God would meet with man. Living in the garden was like living in the inner parts of the tabernacle. It was like living in the temple. It was an existence entirely before God, in his presence, close to him, in worship to him, in absolutely every part of life. That's what Eden was all about. Uh, I'm going to make an assumption which I think is a fairly safe assumption, and that is that most of you have seen or at least are aware of uh, that classic film, the Australian classic, The Castle. (laughs) I'm going to assume you've seen that. Uh, If you haven't seen it, it comes around every few months on TV, so it's probably due within the next month or so. Even if you haven't seen it, you probably know a couple of the lines from it. Uh, You probably know that special things go to the pool room, uh, which is not the line I'm really going to be referring to, You might know Daryl Kerrigan's great defence before the High Court 
A man's home is his castle. A man's home is his castle. Daryl Kerrigan probably didn't know that, uh, but he was actually quoting an old British law. In fact, I guarantee he didn't know that. (laughs) Not that kind of guy. But he was actually quoting an old law, a, a, a real law from Britain. Uh, that a man's home is his castle. That is a law. It's written as such. And within his castle, a man is a master of his castle. He can do as he pleases there within the law. Uh, He rules his castle. And even to the point, in Britain anyway, that he can reserve uh, the right to refuse entry even to the king (laughs) because his house is his castle. He, He rules. He's over it. It's the place where his will is done. Husbands, don't get any ideas. That's not a rule here. (laughs) Genesis 2 is telling us Eden is God's castle. This world is God's castle. It's where he rules. It's where you meet with him. It's where his will is done. And amazingly, it's where man lives, right before God, right near him, in this ideal and perfect place, living their whole life in front of him, serving him, obeying him. So we're told here how we work best, aren't we? We're told here that man's life is meant for God. That all of our life is meant to be near him and under him. Our work, our rest, our play, our very existence is to be before God. Because their life works as it's supposed to. There there is harmony. There there is peace and happiness. Here is utopia. But not no place a real place. That means in order for life to work well, we must be near God. That is how we were made. That's how we're meant to be. And that means, because of what happens in the very next chapter, we need some way or someone to get us near God. Because we know what happens in the next chapter, don't we? We know what happens very soon after this chapter, in fact. Mankind rebels. Mankind does their own thing in God's place. The one rule God has set, mankind disobeys. And God himself is rejected. God's ways are rejected. And the result of that is death, death to come, the curse of it, and exile. Man is sent out of this beautiful place, out of the garden, out of God's presence. Life is now not as it was ought to be. And what we see in the rest of the Old Testament is really a story of what's missing, of how hard it is, how impossible it is even to get back to this state, get back to where we're supposed to be. See, as you read the rest of the Old Testament, what you see is that any time anyone comes near God, there is terror and danger and even death. God comes to a mountain, anyone who touches it dies. His people move the ark, the symbol of his presence, anyone who touches it dies. God comes to his servants, the prophets, and even they fear death and are terrified and so on. In fact, the only way anyone can get a little close is to try and replicate what was happening in Eden, to to build a temple, to build a tabernacle. But even then, access was hard. 
You could only come in by sacrifice, by ritual, through a priest, and even then, not often, only on special occasions. See, now God is distant and man suffers because life cannot work as it was supposed to. God cannot be approached until he comes near. And so John starts his Gospel with these words. One, uh, John 1.14 The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling literally tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. In the very next chapter, John 2.19 Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And John comments, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. See, what he's saying is the meeting place of God and man has come close. Not in a building anymore. Not in a special place, but in a special person. He's saying we can meet with God again. We can live before God again. Because Jesus is God come to us. He is the place where we can meet with God. How is that possible? How is that that threat of death and danger overcome? Well, Hebrews 9.14 tells us this. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? See, that rift that sin caused, that breakdown in our relationship, that destruction of created harmony, Jesus came to fix. He came to be God near us in order to bring us near to God. And he did that by his blood, the most costly sacrifice ever, shedding it to open our access, to heal that rift, to close that gap, So that like we were supposed to, we can once again live before God in every part of our life. Not only at special times, not only at special places, but always, as we did in Eden. Now that is a process. It's a journey. Because that that fixing, that healing that Jesus came to do, takes time. But he not only came to tell us how to do it, he came to give us his spirit in order that we can do it. Just as God breathed uh, life into man in Eden, so Jesus came and breathed the spirit into us so that we could spiritually live and really do this and return to life as we were intended to. And so now, because of him, we get to come back to this come back to what we were created to do. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 describes it for us in in words that are so similar to Genesis 2. It says, So uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what Eden was about, wasn't it? Everything for the glory of God. Everything for his praise. Everything for his worship. And that's what we can do in Jesus because he has healed us, he has placed us before God to glorify him in all that we do. Ask yourself, what would that look like in your work? (laughs) 
How can you glorify God in your rest, in your holidays, in, in your plans for your future? How can you bring, bring God the glory in all of your life? Not just on Sundays, not just in special places, but in everything you do. See, if you put your trust in Jesus, then he saves you to live before God in a close relationship with him, in harmony as his child. You won't, you won't lose that in your mistakes. You'll make mistakes, but you'll never lose that status. <laughs> and by doing this, by obeying him, you can enjoy it all the more. By living in his will, by bringing glory to him, you'll live as he created you to. Jesus has restored you to God to live before him in everything as he created you to, as he intended you to. Now, as always, God's intention is good. <laughs> it's wonderful, in fact. It's, it's perfect. And we see that so clearly in Genesis 2. But we also see we also see something that's just a little bit off. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. <laughs> what a shock that comes as. Everything to this point has been good. Everything's beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And now there's something that's not good. <laughs> it's, in, it's incredible. We, we have to just note, this comes... Uh, if we're trying to harmonise Genesis 2 and 1, this comes before Genesis 1.31. This comes before God declares everything very good. So it's not at odds here, it's, it, you've got to put them together. Uh, the coming of woman, the coming of man's relationship, that becomes very good. That's when that's announced. It's also worth noticing who declares there's something not good here. It's not as if Adam looked around one day and said, there's something missing. <laughs> I feel like I'm lacking something. Uh, it's not Adam complaining here. It's actually God. God says, you know what? We need something else. <laughs> you, Adam, need something else. There's something missing. And so I'm going to provide it. So how does God uh, provide a helper? Well, now we just rewind a little bit and we rewind to man's first work in the garden, which is the naming of all the animals. Look at verse 19 to 20. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. One by one, all of the animals come before Adam. God, God brings them there. This, this is literally a mammoth task. <laughs> and lots of other animals as well. It's, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, you got me. <laughs> it, it, it's an enormous job, isn't it? But I think we, we need to note, what Adam's doing here is not just calling the animals something. It's not like he's going, yeah, cat and dog and elephant and so forth. What he's doing is he's naming them. He's telling each animal who they are. He's telling them what they are. Sure, he's giving them an, uh, something to call them, but so much more. What Adam is doing is exercising his dominion over creation. He's saying, God has put me over you all, so let me tell you how this is all going to work. And he does that for the entire animal kingdom. Each of them according to their kind. But none of them of his kind. 
As the last animal goes past, it is clear there is nothing in the whole of the world that is like Adam. He is unique, he is special. And so in order to provide a helper, God does something unique. He does something special here. Look at verse 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Woman is formed here by God out of man, out of his rib, probably out of his side. It is a little bit more accurate. Not out of the earth, in which case she would have something more in common with the earth than with him, but out of him, so as to be like him in every way and the same as him. Now, lots of people take side or rib and try to make it into some sort of equality, try to spiritualise that, but it's really not necessary (laughs) because everything about the creation of woman here implies equality with man. She is like man. In fact, there is nothing in the whole world that is like man as woman is like man. She is, in fact, made of the same stuff as man. (laughs) She is truly equal with him. There's nothing uh, to contradict that here. And having created her, we see something beautiful. We see the very first wedding. God brings the woman to the man and in verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, for she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. God presents woman to man and man's eyes pop. He is amazed. Uh, He is so amazed, he breaks out in song. I mean, just, just trying to picture this scene. Man has uh, been, been searching, been looking for a companion and now he sees woman. <laughs> he sees uh, God bringing her down the aisle, so to speak, at the very first wedding. I mean, uh, husbands, uh, search your dim memories for your wedding day uh, and, and try to rem- remember that moment that your wife appeared at the other end of the church or your wife-to-be. Uh, It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, how stunning did she look? How amazing, how wonderful, uh, how crazy nervous and excited and overwhelmed you were. It's it's an incredible moment. Well, imagine man here. There's never been a wedding. What a a moment. He has just sorted through the entire animal kingdom. And now before him is a creature like nothing he has ever seen in his entire life. He sees straight away she is of him. She is like him. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, made for him, perfect and exquisite and stunning. And take note of this, guys. The first recorded words of mankind in the Bible are a poem. (laughs) Are a love song, in fact. Praising the beauty of woman. Uh, revelling in how good she is and how good marriage with her will be. We can take note of that. I think that's important. See, what we're being shown here is that man is created for, intended for companionship. We are not made to be alone. We are made for one another. We are made for relationship. It is very right and very good to be in relationship.
I think we know that. Uh, I think it's why we use isolation as a punishment so often, don't we? Uh, We send people to jail, we take them out of society, we remove them from other people. Uh, We we do it to kids at school, don't we? Uh, Kids get detention and it's the worst. Not that I would know, uh, no personal experience of that. Uh, but, But what worse is there than being trapped in a room with a teacher of all people whilst your friends, being good friends that they are, play right outside the door taunting you. It's the worst. We want to be with them. It's why the naughty corner or the naughty chair works. We hate being alone. We are not made to be alone. We are made for companionship with others. And marriage points to the highest expression of fulfilment of that. Marriage shows us just how good that can be and how important it is to us. Now, Genesis 2 is not a marriage course by any means, but it does tell us some very important things about relationships. The first thing it tells us is that the woman is a helper and that does not mean she is less. Uh, God calls himself a helper a number of times throughout the Old Testament, the helper of his people. Uh, It's a powerful position. It's telling us she supplies his needs, she makes up what's missing, she completes him. Uh, It's telling us woman's essential to man, for for men to function well. Uh, She is not lesser because together they form the very good image of God. These verses tell us that marriage is special. Look at verse 24 to 25. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and uh, and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, there is a unity in marriage that is found nowhere else. There is nothing like it. It is so close and so intimate. It, it's described here as one flesh. You know, just as uh, an, an organ uh, or a, a limb transplant gradually over time becomes part of the recipient, so too man and wife become part of one another. They are literally one flesh. They are so together. There is nothing closer than this. There is such intimacy here. We're we're told they're naked, they felt no shame because there's nothing between them. Their intimacy, their relationship is perfect. Uh, We're we're talking about sex clearly but not just sex. We're talking about the whole of their life. There is no fear here. There is no selfishness. There's no shame. There is only intimacy. Now sadly as we're going to see next week Uh, Marriage is one of the first casualties of sin. Uh, It's one of the first things that is ruined and defiled, uh, which is why it needs such guarding and why it needs such care today. But what we're also going to see is that in Jesus, as we saw earlier today, marriage is being restored. We can enjoy it living before God as we were intended to do. Because not only is Jesus fixing us, But he's also shown us what marriage can look like. He's given us a beautiful picture of how it can work. Uh, We saw it a few months ago when we looked at Ephesians 5. Uh, If you want to do marriage well, just look at Jesus and the church. Because there we have, uh, in his relationship with the church, his bride, the perfect standard of marriage. We see the voluntary submission of the wife. We see the deep sacrificial love of the husband coming together in a beautiful and wonderful way. 
We see a husband celebrating her, his wife, loving who she is, seeking to serve her and honour her in order that she would see her more radiant, more stunning, living the very fullness of life, using her gifts to her best. We see a wife helping her husband, voluntarily, lovingly submitting to him, seeking to come alongside, be his helper, so that together they can live and grow together and serve God. See, the key to marriage is remembering what it was created for. Remembering how and why and what it was given for. That it was to be lived before God and serving him in all things. And when we understand that, when we seek for that in marriage, then our marriages grow. Then they become strong. In fact, then they become fun and good. Now what that means is that there is a key discussion we have to have in Christian marriage. And that is we have to ask ourselves and our spouses, how can we serve God together? How can we serve God together in our relationship, in our family? What is it that we can do to grow together in him and to glorify him in all that we do? Now, each couple will have their own answer. We all move in different circles. We're at different stages of life. And we each need to ask ourselves that regularly because our lives change. And our answer to that question will change as we do. We need to keep asking ourselves, how can we live in this marriage, in and before God, and bring him glory? And it's not just married people who need to ask that. Because this passage speaks to singles too. Sure, marriage is important, but it is not everything. Uh, In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 can even go so far as to say that marriage is optional, (laughs) that it's not necessary. But what we are told here is that relationships are necessary, that relationships are essential and that it is essential that those relationships are lived before God in service to him and with a, a desire and intent to bring glory to him. See, you know that, that phrase, man is not an island. No, no person is made to live as an individual. All of us, singles included, need each other to live well. And so we have to overcome that, that, that urge that we sometimes have to withdraw from others and instead see our relationships as important. See them as places to serve and to honour God. Uh, see them for the sake of the other, for the sake of ourself, but for the sake of God as well and the glory he can be brought to him through them. So remember here the goal that Jesus is working towards, the, the reason he came to earth that he is drawing to himself a people gathered around God in worshipful existence before him. And that is true for marrieds as much as it is true for those who are single because all of us play an important part in seeing that happen. In the way we conduct our relationships, in the way we witness in our relationships, in the way we value and live for each other and with each other, in the way we serve and glorify him together. And we do all of this in the hope 
of utopia again. We, we do all of this in the hope of Eden regained because that is exactly what the Bible promises. Uh, have a look through your, your Bible at Revelation 21 and 22 later today. Ha, have a read through there because what you will see is Eden coming back. You will see Eden coming to earth again. You will see God's city where he can be met, where can he, he can be lived before, coming to earth in beauty and perfection forever. There will be no temple there because he's there. In fact, the whole place is again a temple to him. There will be marvellous beauty there, streets paved with gold, buildings encrusted with jewels. There will be a river there, again, that, that flows out from that city to bring life to the earth. Again, there will be a tree of life there so that life forever will be ours to be had. This time there will be no tree of good and evil. There will be no chance of another fall. We will be with God forever, assured of that. See, we will never make utopia on earth and we don't have to because it will come to earth one day. God will bring it here. He will restore us perfectly and again we will live before him as we were created to do without shame, without fear, without worry or anxiety but in this wonderful and perfect garden city in a life of pure delight, in perfect relationship with him and with one another forever. That is the glorious future he is taking us to. And in Jesus we can already taste it. In Jesus we can already practice it. We can already live before him now and bring him praise and bring him glory in all that we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this picture of Eden that we've read and, and looked at today it fills us with longing. Father, we want that sort of harmony and perfection. We want that joy and closeness to you. And so we praise you that in Jesus you are restoring us. You are fixing what we broke in our rebellion against you. We thank you that he gave himself to bring us near you again so that we could be called your children and we could be given this hope of an eternity in a place even more radiant than Eden ever was. Father, we, help, we pray that you would help us to live with eyes fixed on that future, anticipating that day, and even now, living out that restored relationship Jesus has given us with you. Father, may our desire be to live for you, to glorify you in every single part of our life, that you would be honoured and that we would delight in living for you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.